0: Some of it starts with our, our beliefs about money and that idea that more will make us happier. And it is such such a compelling idea. But we know from many, many research studies that unless you're below a pretty low level of like where your basic needs aren't being met, more money's not gonna bring more contentment.
1: Money and mental states, they are so closely intertwined. And yet we like to keep it separate, or at least keep the money part hidden away until we really have to deal with it. At least that's kind of what I do. But it's so deeply embedded in our culture. But let's talk about how it affects who we hang out with, class and society, how we might feel about our spouse or ourselves based on our earnings. Over the years, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with friends about the imbalance of earnings in a relationship or not being able to do things that they wish they could. I've heard guys I've worked with in the past, and I hate this, but I've heard guys I've worked with in the past saying, making kind of underhanded, disparaging comments about their wife sitting around all day while he has to go to work and make the money. Not all guys, but I've heard it enough. I've heard from women who stay at home but are afraid to go back in the workforce because they don't feel like they have the same earning power or skill sets as some of their peers. You know, it's not like the workplace is really accommodating working moms in the same way that they do for men. And this part of money, all of these kind of underlying bubbling things that we don't really talk about is what I don't hear people talking about enough, and that's why we're talking about it here. So I've been super excited to bring on Dr. Seth Gillihan. Seth Gillihan is a clinical psychologist. He's a best-selling author, podcast host, and creator of the Think, Act, B online school. He specializes, this is so cool, he specializes in mindfulness-centered cognitive behavioral therapy. And I want to say, because usually when I hear cognitive behavioral therapy, it sounds very scientific, and then blending or fusing it with mindfulness, I don't hear quite often. And Seth shares simple research-based practices for managing stress and anxiety. Uh, We talk about spouse envy, blending cognitive behavioral therapy with mindfulness practice, and how money impacts relationships Your relationship, my relationship, our relationships with each other, and the culture at large. This is such a juicy episode, and I couldn't wait to bring it to you. Quick note that these episodes are getting more and more real, like right to the very heart of the matter. No dancing around. We are solving problems. And I want you to go to allisonhair.com and drop me your email. And you'll get these new episodes delivered right to your inbox with a personal story I don't really share anywhere else. And you can do that at allisonhair.com and leave me your email. Here's my chat with Dr. Seth Gillahan So we're talking all about money, but not like money, how to invest better, but like how money impacts who we hang out with, the decisions that we make, the way that we feel about ourselves, the way we move around the world. And so you have been in private practice for quite some time. And I'm wondering how many of, how much of people's deep-seated issues around self-worth, communication, anxiety, how much do you think could be stemmed from, uh, from the root of money?
0: Well, yeah, it's a great question. I, I think there, I mean, there's definitely a, a a close connection between kind of our our fears, our anxieties, our you know, the way we see ourselves, and our relationship with money. I think that the relationship runs in both directions. You know, there's, um, I mean, certainly the the way that we feel about ourselves impacts our relationship with money, but um, uh, and, and the the reverse can also be true, but i I think our 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 attitudes and our our feelings around our finances in one way or another can reveal a lot about us. I think we can learn from ourselves uh, learn about ourselves from just from kind of observing how we relate to money and how we how money might come up in our other relationships too, which we may talk about as well, whether with a partner or or friends, or parents, or others.
1: Yeah i I had just started um, with my own therapist, and I I gingerly brought up, you know, what I think I've got issues with money. <laughs> <laughs> we need to kind of un, unpack this, and it's it's almost like you know I'm I'm afraid to open the beast a little bit. And one thing in an article that you wrote, do you mind if I read a, you a passage that just kind of stopped me dead in my track tracks? You have said. Our early experiences with money can also affect what we believe we're capable of. For example, if we dreamed of getting a nice toy but couldn't afford it, we might come to believe that the things we really want in life will always be out of reach.
0: Right, yeah, those formative experiences. I know, I know. Who knew? Even before, you know, we were aware that we were developing kind of a, a psychology of ourselves and of our. Of our own worth, yeah, these things can have an effect on us. I mean, this is something that I learned really clearly from Ken Honda. You know, the, he's also called the Zen millionaire. Happy I, money, right? Happy, Happy money. money. Yes. Yeah. Great book. Really insightful. And yeah, I think those, those types of early learning experiences can really shape us for longer than we realize and can end up there can be a kind of positive feedback loop where we believe certain things about ourselves, which then affects our actions in a way that confirm our beliefs, which then continue to affect what we feel and what we do. And we can kind of, we we can, if we're not aware of it, if we're not consciously self-aware, we can stay stuck in those kind of self-perpetuating cycles.
1: But that's what I'm wondering. Do you feel like our ability to earn money, our... The way that we, ha- maybe there's stories that we're being, we're kind of telling ourselves are being formed in our formative years. Do you feel like it limits what we can earn? Do we have to unlearn? Do we have to consciously unlearn it?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I, a lot of us, I think, do. I mean, yeah, it's it's interesting because it's, to, in my mind, it's not, the, the amount of money that we're able to make is not necessarily a good judge of our psychological health around money so there are those who are fantastic Mm. at making money they make it hand over fist and yet have a very unhealthy relationship with money you know a person could manage a hedge fund and you know bring in Mm. multiple millions a year but that doesn't mean that they have a healthy relationship with money It just means that they're good at multiplying their income and i think i mean if we if we step back even a little further maybe this is slightly outside the, the the realm of Psychology, but I think all of us grow up in a society where money is really revered, and our self worth is attached to money. Our uh, the again the idea of what we're capable of is tied to how much we're able to earn because of just the Mm. the capitalist water that we all swim in. And so I think that takes takes a lot to see through that. There's a kind of cultural core belief that we have around the value of of an income and that in somehow in, in some way it's hard to value ourselves or the work of others if it's not attached to some dollar value so that's kind of the the, the bigger picture uh, but but yeah i think when we um i think we, we can in unconscious ways find ourselves limited in how much we earn because of certain underlying beliefs like maybe we have a belief that um, the work I do is invaluable or that mm. I'm, I don't value myself and so how could I possibly expect someone to pay for the, the effort that I'm expending? Um, or this this idea of a kind of fixed, uh, like a fixed pie where if I, if I have more, that means less for someone else, so there can be guilt attached to money Mm. versus, you know, more of, as I'm sure you're familiar with, an abundance mindset where, you know, the the idea being like a rising tide raises all ships.
1: Right, right. I, uh, when I was younger, my mother beat it into my head when I was a teenage girl, and she would say, Allison, never rely on a man to make money. You always make your own money. And my mother was a stay at home mom and I don't know that she regretted it, but she found herself in some, you know, in some positions where she didn't want her daughters to be in that same boat. And so that, that story of productivity, of self-worth, I work professionally in sales and have been for 20 years and that, um, really is like an unwinding or I'm trying to unwind that self worth kind of tied to the earnings thing, you know, and I know that you, uh, specialize very heavily, not only in, in mindfulness, but also in cognitive behavioral therapy, which I think is an interesting mix too, which I do want to dig into, but can you explain what cognitive behavioral therapy is and how we can start to maybe apply some of these principles to unlearning?
0: Sure. Well, the, the cognitive part is just that it's the awareness that we're telling ourselves stories all the time, or, or we might say our mind is telling us a story all the time. And if we don't recognize those stories, then we're, we're going to live under the assumption that they're true. So an example would be, um, let's say, uh, I, the, the, the thought comes to me, um, I'm never going to get ahead financially. I mean that's a story, right? It 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 it's a prediction about the future. It could be true. It might not be true, but I might receive that as just fact, like uh, like the sky is blue today. It actually is. It's a gorgeous day here, so that's true. But the the idea that I won't get ahead financially is an idea that may or may not come true. And so with with the cognitive part of CBT, we we practice very deliberately recognizing those stories that's the first part because if if we don't recognize them mm-hmm. then we have no chance of of changing them of adopting a different story and then once we're aware of them then we can ask ourselves like is that the only alternative or is it possible that things could go a different way like maybe i i will do better financially maybe i am able to make more money than i think um, and then you know at that deeper level that we were talking about maybe also asking why am I basing my self worth on the money that I make? Why is why is my my own value attached to the the uh, the value of my of my savings account? But you know I should mention Alison again. You know I, the, this broader context. I, I I tend to focus on the individual, and I think it's it's only more recently that I've been aware of these these more kind of society wide aspects. But when you talk about someone's net, what's someone's net worth? right? Mm. We know exactly what that means. That means what's the dollar value of their assets versus liabilities. And that's their net worth. Or we say someone has a successful, had a successful life, had a successful career, has a successful business. Mostly what we assume that means is how much money is coming in? How much is this person, uh, how much does this person have in the bank? So Mm -hmm. it's, so it's, understandable that we end up falling for these stories about our our worth being attached to money because that's how it is in our society i mean same with your mom as a as uh as someone who it sounds like didn't uh wasn't wasn't working outside the home after she had kids at least Mm -hmm. i mean our society places a very clear dollar value on that type of work versus i don't just mean versus working outside of the home for a paycheck not just in the paycheck but but with retirement, like if you're not paying into mm-hmm. Social Security through your, you know, withholdings with from your job, then a lot of people, more often women, are kind of out of luck when it comes to retirement, especially if their spouses, if they got divorced or their spouses didn't, you know, provide for their retirement. Again, I know you didn't ask me on here as a cultural critic, but.
1: No, no, I think it is. I mean, this is called culture changers. This is all about culture. And I, you know, it reminds me, I speak to so many women who are stay-at-home moms and they dread the question when they meet somebody oh do you work outside the home you know like there is an inherent value you know of like oh i have to explain this but don't they realize how hard i work just to keep these humans alive you know it's uh it is it's a commentary on society of self-worth and uh and it's 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 dreadful that they have to dread this conversation, you know, like dread that question. Isn't it?
0: I hate that. I mean, it's it's, it's so often the answer, too, sadly, is no, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. Right? Just
1: a stay-at-home mom. I'm just a mom.
0: Right. I'm just raising yeah, the next generation. Yeah, why is it so devalued? Uh,
1: right. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I think, again, it comes back to that awareness that there is not this value within society, and mm. so we want to kind of... It's sort of like when you want to uh, let someone else know before they tell you, like when you have an issue, like like a like a problem, like, like oh, like a cold sore. Like you want to say to someone like, oh, yeah, I've got a cold sore before they point it out, or before they notice it on their own. There's somehow, you know, somehow you control the story or, or at least yeah. you know that they know that you know. So maybe... So, so maybe that's that's part of it, wanting to to preempt that feeling of of the other person's judgment. Like, no, it's okay. I'm already judging myself. I'm already kind of downgrading right. myself. But it's yeah. I think it's it's sad and it's, I mean, irritating too. I think there's there is just so much judgment around uh, women's work in both directions. You know, whether yeah. you work outside the home or you don't. So yeah, I mean, you as you may have guessed, I've had many conversations with my wife about this and she's you know, helped me to to see these things more clearly, but it is, it is such an unfortunate issue. I had a, I had a, um, I was working once with a stay at home mom who said that her, one of her kids had said something about, um, she does nothing all day. I mean, this is someone mm. with, you know, Mm-mm. like five kids running them around everywhere, you know, working, before anyone else in the morning and later than anyone else in the family at night. And then, you know, this, this kid was, was so, I mean, he's a teenager, so he didn't have the perspective to know, but, but yeah, how sad to, to have your, your life devalued in that way.
1: But I think also there, there are a couple of things that come to mind. So, you know, I work in uh, tech, technology sales and it's uh, I'm generally one of very few women. Um, and so I'll hear men talk about their wives, not all, but I'll hear comments of she does nothing all day, you know, or if, if she would bring some more money in, we could do more. Um, and one thing I, I was interested to talk about, cause I know you work in, uh, uh, you've spoken about money as it relates to couples. And I've been, uh, I was at a, a, a big party That was a big surprise party that was thrown recently. And it was a very lavish party, Uh, people that are very affluent. And I cannot tell you how many of the guests said, I wish my husband did this for me. You know, I wish we could make more money. I wish we could, you know, they must have, you know, it was just this weird commentary of like either downgrading their spouse or, uh, or, 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 making commentary. I don't know if it's spouse envy or what it was, but it was like this commentary where it was like this us versus them, or, you know, like I, I couldn't, I wish I could be at this other level. And it just, it was sad to me. And so I wonder from a, it shouldn't be that way. And I wonder you being in the position that you're in where you speak to people one-on-one and you have a podcast and you have books. I mean, you're, you're, your commentary out in the world is changing society whether it's one person at a time or through commentary through some of your articles how do you even begin to unwind a tangle of a money mindset using cognitive behavioral therapy mm. or mindfulness i mean it it, it yeah. is so complicated
0: yeah well some of it some of it starts with our our beliefs about money and that idea that more will make us happier and it is such such a compelling idea, but we know from many, many research studies that unless you're below a pretty low level of like where your basic needs aren't being met, more money is not going to bring more contentment. And in fact... Will
1: it, more money bring freedom? Is freedom happiness?
0: Two big questions. So, so more money can bring more freedom and more flexibility. Um, and and that, that may bring more happiness um but but what we know is on average beyond some amount it used to be 50,000 last i heard it's maybe 75,000 US dollars a year that net happiness doesn't go up mostly because we habituate so quickly you know we we take things for granted whatever the the situation is we get used to it um that doesn't mean that we're not glad to have you know the the freedom and the the opportunities that we have but but it's usually not this sort of unadulterated uh pleasure you know or 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 enjoyment or benefit that there are you know there are downsides like there are there are more things to worry about when you have more money there's more to lose there's there's really i mean i so here's the thing Allison. i mean I, i think what's what's helped me most in my understanding of of money is um is working with people who've had a lot of it and because I, I am just as susceptible, you know, to some of the things you were describing, like like when I see someone, you know, who's uh, like a, a couple who's able to do something, you know, re- really nice and I wish like, oh, I wish I had that, that kind of money, you know, that I could <clears throat> that I could, you know, plan that kind of trip, you know, for my wife or for our family. Sure. Um and that, you know, that'd be nice on the one hand, but then you know, when 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 I talk to people who are in a position to do that. It's not like their lives are ideal. It's not like, you know, it's not the Facebook-ized version of, you know, everything mm-hmm. looks looks beautiful and and glamorous. I mean, it's 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 messy in some way, not necessarily because of the money, but the money doesn't take away the existing problems. Like if someone's in a relationship that's not great, then having more money isn't going to improve that. It could even make it worse. Maybe it makes maybe it means more time apart. Less closeness and intimacy, possibility for other people entering the picture in a way that's not good for the couple um, in terms of infidelity or that kind of thing. Um, or it's just, um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's no way really to save enough money or to have enough money that, that suddenly things are okay. That the basic types of things that we worry about—our health, our relationships—those kinds of things can't. They're they're immune to no matter. You know, it doesn't matter how much money we have. You can have you know the you can have the best relationship experts. You can have um, the best doctors, and still we all live with this this kind of uncertainty. And and the more we stockpile in a way, it can just feed this insatiable uh, hunger. For security, a type of security that that isn't found in our possessions, and that's I, I can pause. I'm on a bit of a uh, a bit of a ramble, but um,
1: I love it. I love it because I wonder how how do you redirect your attention? Can you can you consciously redirect your attention in a way that's going to be healthier than continually continuously focused on? Status, money, self worth—you uh, know, productivity—all of those things kind of tied into it.
0: Yeah, I think all those things I would consider attachments. You know, a- attachment in the uh, the kind of Eastern uh, philosophy type of approach, where we, we get we um, we cling to things, we we chase things, and we cling to these attachments, believing that they're where our our happiness lies. And and then the happiness that we hope for doesn't materialize. And so usually we double down. You know, we say, okay, well, that wasn't enough, but I just need more. I just need to, you know, I need a better mm-hmm. car, better, bigger house, bigger income. And the way to step out of that is to move from these false attachments to true connection. And, you know, those, those sound similar mm. in a way, you know, attachment and connection. But I think of attachment as a kind of of an an attempt to merge myself with something like to to fuse myself to a, a person or a possession but in a way that can never be consummated like we can't actually get there we remain frustrated but connection is real it's a kind of more of a of a of an overlapping but without emerging and that type of that way of relating is inherently satisfying. So I can, I can give you an example. Um, we can go on the, the, you know, the, the most lavish, um, vacation, you know, go to all the, uh, nicest spots in Europe or Asia, or wherever, or the U S mm. and, and not really experience it in a real way. Uh, you know feel the the whole time that we're constantly chasing something that continues to elude us, or we can have that same experience or even the experience that you and I, Allison, are having right now in a real grounded connected type of way, and it 's the best thing ever because we're just doing what we're doing we're seeing what we're seeing, feeling what we're feeling we're hearing. Sounds and we're actually having that experience. So, and that's that's Isn't where that the being
1: present though that is, is being, that present. being present.
0: That's mindfulness. Is that it? Yes. Is that all? Is
1: connection? That's it. That's it. Yeah,
0: yeah. Huh. Just being present to our experience.
1: That's a really powerful distinction of attachment versus connection. I never th- heard that before.
0: Yeah, that 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 occurred to me recently. It's so funny that they they they, they sound so similar, and yet I think yeah. because attachment to me, is is a misguided attempt at connection, but it's a connection that that ne- is never realized.
1: One thing I heard in your podcast when you did interview Ken Honda, and this, again, was really beautiful and kind of dovetails off of what you're saying, is that if you're going to invest in anything, invest in relationships, because relationships are far more satisfying it's like it it trumps any money you know uh than anything could if you've got strong relationships i thought that was really beautiful Mm.
0: yeah i love that too i thought that was so so important and so well said when he described it i think it it overlaps a lot for me with the value of experiences versus possessions and i think that's again i mean Mm -hmm. maybe the the a kind of similar distinction to attachment and connection that the these the, these things that we want to possess never um never satisfy really in the way that a that a um that an experience does something that we can actually i mean because like if i you know, let's say um i mean i don't know if if uh if people are watching a video of this or, or just the audio but i'm i'm holding up this stone um it's not valuable but it you know th- if this were a diamond I might have had, uh, you know, real covetousness for this. I think if I could just Mm -hmm. own that, if I could just have that diamond, I'd be satisfied. But when it comes down to it, what are you going to do with the stone, right? I mean, you can look at it, you can hold it, but it's not going to comfort you when you're lonely. It's not going to feed you when you're hungry. It's not going to satisfy your thirst versus an experience. I mean, you'd, you know, you'd trade everything you have for a glass of cold water if you were dying of thirst and you had this, this, this stone.
1: So, I'm so interested to learn about you. So, you have a very academic background, University of Pennsylvania and uh, PhD in cognitive behavioral therapist, yet you focus um, a, a lot on merging that with mindfulness. And so, from an ignorant person's perspective, me being the ignorant person, one seems a little more woo than the other. <laughs> How do you do you? Do you experience pushback on that, and what is your experience on merging the two? Why are they important together?
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that, and I appreciate you framing it that way because I think a lot of people have that experience and that impression that that mindfulness is kind of you know, sort of out there, it's kind of woo woo, and cognitive behavioral therapy, at least by reputation, is sort of uh, you know it's more scientific. It's, Mm -hmm. uh, more cut and dried, more rational. And I mean, I, I came to, to CBT first, you know, I had a science background in, in college, I was a biology major. Um, and I think that's why it appealed to me, but really what I've, what I found in my practice as I later came to mindfulness, uh, both as a clinician and practicing it myself. Is that the two are really indispensable for each other? That there, I I think of them now as, as you know, head, hands, and heart. Head being cognitive, hands being behavioral, and heart being mindfulness. Mm. Also, mind, body, spirit. I think it maps on in the same way, and we need all of those. We need to address all those aspects of ourselves to be you know really fully functioning human beings. So when I am When i'm practicing presence i'm more likely to recognize the stories my mind is telling me so our our mindfulness practice can support our cognitive practice when i'm doing an activity and it you know it it could be something i enjoy if i'm really present focused on what i'm doing uh, accepting things as they are then i'm going to get a lot more out of that out of that experience so our our uh, mindfulness can support our behavioral therapy and in, in, in the same way, the things that we think and the things that we do are really intimately connected to our experience of mindful presence. So i am actually, I mean, I've, I have kind of integrated these into a practice I call Think Act B to summarize yeah. these three and um, it's actually the provisional title of a new book that I'm finishing up where I'm, you know, really kind of trying to flesh out this integration and the um, kind of the 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 mutual benefit that mindfulness and CBT offer each other, and what a what a complete system um, it can can give us. I, I should mention that there's a, a really a growing body of uh, scientific support for mindfulness, and that a lot of the trappings that we associate with it, like um, you know crystals and and mm. you know. Certain types of clothing and incense and all those things, I mean, are, are fine, uh, but they're not, they're not an, a, a necessary part of mindfulness, which is the simplest thing. It's just, as you said, it's being present. It's being present and open to our lives just as they are, receiving our life just as we find it. And as simple and direct as that is, it also is the foundation for these deep meaningful spiritual practices and also you know changes the brain as you know from brain imaging studies and mm. and affects our cortisol levels and you know all kinds of these you know scientifically validated outcomes so I, it, yeah
1: it's so simple it's annoying
0: <laughs> <laughs> i know how can it be so difficult if it's so simple
1: <laughs> right it's hard work so what do you in your practice what do you find yourself saying over and over again? As a society, a collective, what do we need to hear? What are people struggling with? What do, you, what do you find yourself saying over and over?
0: So two things. One, come back to yourself. Come back to yourself over and over. Just come back. Okay, yeah, all right, I'm back. And then I'm out and I'm doing something else. And I'm worrying and I'm thinking about something that's not happening now and I'm disconnected from my body. All right, come back. Come right back. You're right here. So I, one of the practices that I, that I um, started doing myself and then shared with others, just this I am here meditation. I mean, it's a, it's a you know, three-word meditation, mm. but just I am here. I'm here. And there's, a, there's a, an immediate grounding that we can experience. The other is, that, um, is to let things take the amount of time that they take. You know, going back to that scarcity mindset that we talked about That's earlier. It's so hard. It's so hard. That one's hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the alternative is we end up, you know, struggling against, against the limits of time and making time the enemy and feeling like we're constantly being uh, pushed and, and punished by time limits. But when we accept that the time we have is the time that we have and we let things take the time that they take, not that we have to go in slow motion. But we just realize like this is going to take some finite amount of time. And as long as I'm doing it, I'm going to be in the experience. What a relief. I've been reminding myself of that many, many times a day lately. You have time. Because I just, you know, reflexively fall into that feeling of like, okay, I'm going to get this done. and I'm going to get this done. And I have to move on to this. And it's like,
1: yeah, it's like forcing it through
0: the whole day. I mean, from the time we wake up until we go till you know, until we go to bed. But if we can just pause be like you have time it's all right buddy take it easy like you have time Mm. and if we don't have time then maybe it's not something that has to get done
1: you have the coolest voice and it's so calming
0: (laughs) that's nice (laughs) you're the
1: head of therapy for the bloom app which is like uh an app that combines cbt and mindfulness Tell us how people can, you know, like you you have a whole host of resources available to people. Can you talk about some of the ways that people can maybe access some of those resources and uh, help them in in their lives? Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yes, yes. So my goal, I mean, really going back quite a ways now, has been to bring CBT practices into daily life. Um, in you know in, in in ways that make it really accessible for anyone. So um, that started with just trying to get more CBT into people's hands, uh, like trying to like like writing books about CBT. Uh, but more and more, I found that I, I, I want to find ways to get into our daily lives to make these practices really portable. So um, you know, I had in mind I, I wanted to do a, a, a digital interpretation of CBT in some way. And so when I was approached by Bloom a couple years ago, almost two years ago to the day, actually, um, I was really excited. They're doing great things there. Um, so that's so p- people can check out uh, on my website, uh, sethgillahan.com. Uh, there should be a link to Bloom there. Um, it's been a great collaboration. Because, um, I mean, these devices that we have with us all the time, I mean, obviously they can be such a distraction from our lives, but, you know, we're, we're trying to use them encourage their use in a way that brings us more fully into our our kind of walking talking breathing three-dimensional life um and you know on a in a related way um not in a in a not on the digital side but on the the kind of uh print version side of things uh i've i've uh, created these cbt decks that have uh you know it's Cards like uh, usually about a hundred cards per deck, and uh, each card is a single practice, and you know maybe seventy five words or so, and uh, you can take that practice with you for the day, bring it into your life so that the I am here meditation I mentioned is one of those mm. there are um, other ones that are more on the cognitive side, like practicing recognizing and questioning our thoughts there are behavioral ones like trying out um, you know, small, simple techniques that help us to move through our fears or to accomplish you know, things that are really important to us. So I think that's really where I'm I'm focusing a lot of my energy now is just trying to, to make these practices, really trying to lower the barrier of entry for them. So it's not like this big thing you have to do, but it's just like, here's a card, one thing, try it out today, see what you like. And over time, we're kind of building up this library of techniques that we can use that can really support the things that we want to grow toward in our lives.
1: It's almost like a being present practice.
0: A Absolutely. Present practice, yes. A, a
1: gratitude practice. Yes, <laughs> like yeah, a, a yeah. Gratitude, gratitude is, practice. is one of the,
0: is one of the things. Yes, yeah, yes. Some of them are about gratitude. Um, a lot of them are about presence. So, yes, yes. Yeah, it's, it's, I guess, broadly, it's about being in our lives more fully.
1: Hmm so what are some ways how can people find you dr seth
0: probably the best way is through my website uh, sethgillahan.com and from there there are links to some online guided meditations i have a youtube channel um links to my podcast to my books i think that's a, a kind of a central place to go
1: so you're the think act b guy right i'm the think act right? b
0: guy that's me yeah
1: think that think act b guy
0: yes
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, Dr. Seth, thank you so much for being a guest. This was, this was mind-blowing for me. It was just so great to, to kind of put a uh, to reframe some of the ideas that are holding us back and figuring out how do we just come back to us.
0: Mm. Well, that is a really nice summary of what CBT is, reframing and coming back to ourselves. So I really appreciate yeah, your questions beautiful. and your comments. Thank you for having me on.
1: Sometimes I feel like we can really solve the world's biggest problems together on the Culture Changers podcast. Is that an ambitious goal? I don't know, but it feels like I can do it. And it all starts with getting to the root of what is most important in your life. And based on your feedback, I'm hearing that these topics we're covering are issues that are really resonating with you and issues you've never known that you've been dealing with it. They never had a name. They just bubbled underneath the surface. And then they manifest itself in different ways. And this is happening in my life too. So hopefully we can make it better together. And I'm so excited to have Dr. Seth Gillihan's wisdom and perspective today. I've linked his info in the show notes and I've linked my info in the show notes because I want you to tell me what's going on for you. I want you to reach out to me. What are you facing that's holding you back? What's pissing you off? What's str- What are you struggling with? Or what's working for you? And, you know, maybe there you have some feedback that you'd like to make this show better. Have some critiques over that. I'm open to that too. So if you can connect with me on the socials or drop me your email at allisonhair.com where all the meaty good stuff happens. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.